Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. I told you I'd have some episodes out before the end of the year, and here I am. Today's episode is about an Alaskan serial killer that you likely have never heard of, and that I actually had never heard of until I started doing this podcast. But before I get into that, I just wanted to say thank you so much to all my lovely patrons. You guys are amazing can't thank you enough. If you would like to become a patron, you can visit patreon.com slash midnight sun murder and get access to bonus episodes of which there are four or five right now, as well as other perks. And if you'd like to do a one-time donation, there's a link for that in the show notes. And I greatly appreciate it. Literally every dollar makes a difference. I currently have a couple of different promotions running, one of which is with Blue Apron. If you want to try the service, you can get $30 off your first order using my code. And I've also got one going with Audible, where you can get two free books when you sign up for a 30-day free trial. So there's no out-of-pocket expense for you, and... You can cancel after 30 days, no hard feelings, and you get to keep your two books. Sounds like a fantastic offer to me, so if you want to check it out, click the link in the show notes. Lastly, I just wanted to say Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and whatever else you may celebrate. Hope you are all having fantastic holiday season and you know getting some relaxation in. I just released a little bit of a fluff episode in which I discussed my favorite books, movies, and podcasts of 2018. So if you need something new to read, listen to, or watch, you can check that out. With all of that out of the way, let's get into tonight's story. Tonight, I'm going to be telling you about an obscure serial killer that likely was overshadowed by Robert Hansen because they were both murdering people at the same time in Alaska's two biggest cities, Anchorage and Fairbanks. This killer had 
far less victims than Hansen, and it's likely that Hansen's mythos and his high victim count totally overshadowed this killer, and his story seems to have mostly been lost to time. Like I said, I had never heard of this guy until I started working on this podcast, and furthermore, my parents were actually living in the Fairbanks North Pole area at the time of these murders, and then ended up moving to Anchorage while the Robert Hansen murders were happening. And while they remember the Hansen murders very clearly, because it was all over the news, they have absolutely no recollection of this guy being in the news at all, or hearing reports of any sort of serial killer, which is very strange. So let me give you a little bit of background. Our story takes place in Fairbanks, North Star Borough in 1979. If you're unfamiliar, a borough up here is our equivalent of a county. The borough encompasses Fairbanks, North Pole, Fort Wainwright, which is an army base, and Isleson Air Force Base. At the time of these crimes, the population was right around 53,000, living in a space that is right around the size of the state of New Jersey, which just gives you an idea of the very low population density of about seven people per square mile at the time. So it's 7,500 square miles or 20,000 square kilometers, made up of mostly wilderness. So in short, it's a great place to go to if you're running from something or if you're seeking solitude or privacy to carry out your murderous intentions. There are several small communities in the borough, but I will just tell you about the two that will factor into this story. The first one is North Pole. This is a town that has really leaned into its name. The town is Christmas-themed year-round, including decorations, Christmas-themed street names, and a and there's a huge tourist trap called the Santa Claus House. While there, you can buy all sorts of Christmas junk. And if you're really into Christmas, you can even get married there. And if you're driving by, you definitely have to pull in to see the world's biggest Santa Claus statue, which stands out front of the Santa Claus house. It is a 42-foot fiberglass statue, which stands eternally beckoning you with his black eyes. Back in 1980, the town of North Pole was very small, with only around 700 people. And even now, there's only about 2,000. Located just a few miles away is Fairbanks, but they are two very different places. Fairbanks is a college town, and both of my parents actually went there in the late 70s. They told me that at the time, Fairbanks had sort of a hippie vibe, sort of a you know, back to the wild type feel. A lot of people were moving there so that they could live in dry cabins and 
you know, kind of live like frontiersmen. They also told me that it felt very remote living there. And I guess there's an attitude from some Fairbanks residents that they're living in the, quote, real Alaska, while Anchorage is just a big city. It also gets much colder there in the wintertime than it does in Anchorage. It has actually gotten as cold as negative 66 degrees Fahrenheit, which sounds like a nightmare. It also tends to get a little warmer there in the summer than it does down in Anchorage. And it's actually hit 99 degrees before. So I guess there's a little good with all that bad. So I've given you all of this background information so that you can have a really good grasp of the landscape against which these crimes took place. Our story begins on August 29th, 1979. 19-year-old Glenda Soderman went missing. She was a young wife and mother and was actually the daughter of an Alaska State Trooper. She wasn't the type of person to disappear, let alone leave her baby at home alone. But that's exactly what her husband Jerry found when he came home from work one day. Glenda was nowhere to be found. He was incredibly worried and reported her missing. But initially, there seemed to be the thought that maybe she had just decided to leave him. And there was no real evidence to the contrary. And she and Jerry had not been married for very long. So, as is often true in the case of missing adults... It just wasn't taken seriously at all. However, one month later, Glenda's body was found by a young boy while hunting. She was fully clothed, lying on her back. She had been strangled and shot in the face. Because of the passage of time, it was hard to tell whether she had been sexually assaulted or not. And I actually found differing accounts as to whether they determined the answer to this or not. So I'll just not conclusively say either way. There was very little evidence found where her body was other than a shell casing of a 38 caliber gun. Her family actually suspected that her husband Jerry had murdered her and he initially failed a polygraph but there was absolutely no evidence, no basis to arrest him. So they decided to continue their investigation, but they kept him in their minds as their prime suspect. Nearly a year later, in June of 1980, an 11-year-old girl disappeared while riding her bicycle. Her name was Doris Oring, and despite a massive search, only her bicycle was found hidden under some bushes. A witness who had been in the area had actually seen a blue car come racing out of the road near the same time when the bike was found in that area. Her older brother Thomas told the police about a very suspicious incident that had happened only the day before she had disappeared. They had been riding bicycles together in the same area, and she had gotten a little bit ahead of him. When he caught up to her, he saw that she was talking to a guy that was parked on the side of the road. He had a blue car and the hood was up as though he were having car trouble. As soon as her brother rode up, 
the guy quickly got in his car and sped away. Thomas had managed to get a decent glimpse of the guy and the car and was able to describe them very accurately to get a police sketch. His description was of a man with a mustache and a military-style haircut. And since there's an army base and an air force base in the area, there are quite a few military men that live in the area. So while it was a decent sketch, there were just far too many men in the area that fit the description to narrow it down at the time. Because of the difference in age between Doris and Glenda, the disappearance and murder were not immediately linked. And no matter how intensely they looked, the police just could not find Doris's body or any trace of her. And without a body or very much evidence to go on, they couldn't even conclusively state that a crime had been committed. This time, there was only seven months before another young woman went missing. In January of 1981, 20-year-old Marlene Peters had been trying to hitchhike from Fairbanks to Anchorage to visit her father in the hospital. She had no vehicle, and hitchhiking was her only option to make the 300-mile-plus trip. There were absolutely no witnesses and no leads to her disappearance, and Nobody could be certain where she disappeared on that long stretch of highway between Fairbanks and Anchorage. So again, they had a missing person and very little evidence to start an investigation. And again, she was an adult. She could do as she pleased. So while there was a missing persons report filed, there was no positive indication of foul play. The man responsible for these disappearances and murders was escalating because it was just a month and a half before another young woman went missing. 16-year-old Wendy Wilson was walking to her boyfriend's house. She had been with a friend, but they had parted ways, and the friend saw Wendy talking to a guy in a white truck, and that was the last sighting of her alive. Her body was found a mere three days later, fully clothed, strangled, and shot in the face, with no indication of sexual assault. Within just a few weeks of Wendy's murder, Marlene Peters would finally be found. Her body had been dumped in an isolated area near Eielson Air Force Base. She was also fully clothed and had been strangled and shot in the face. There was also no evidence of sexual assault. By now, authorities had, of course, linked all of these cases together. But they had two eyewitnesses describing two very different vehicles involved in the crimes. So they wondered if either Wendy or possibly Doris were the outliers and their cases were unrelated. Her family and friends and the investigators maintained a glimmer of hope that Doris's case was unrelated and that maybe she had been abducted but was somehow still alive. 
It would be a matter of weeks before another woman went missing in May 1981. 18-year-old Lori King had disappeared while walking home. There were, again, no witnesses and no leads. Her body was found a few months later by hunters. She had been strangled and shot, much like the others. All of these disappearances and murders were beginning to get publicity, and the public was in hysterics. It was obvious there was a serial predator living among them. And, of course, everyone was wondering who would be next. Would it be their daughter, their sister, or their wife? Luckily, the FBI soon got involved and a task force was created to hunt this guy down. It was made up of members of North Pole and Fairbanks Police Department, military police from both bases, state troopers, and FBI. This was all very new to Alaska. This was long before we became infamous as having the highest rate of serial murders per capita. Even though it was now years into this crime spree and there had been multiple murders, they still only had one suspect, Jerry Sodeman. They decided to bring him in to take another polygraph. This one would end up with inconclusive results. Law enforcement knew it was time to get creative. A couple members of the task force decided to fly to Georgia. There, they would meet with law enforcement who had been investigating the serial child murders in Atlanta. This was actually within just a few weeks of them arresting Wayne Williams in June of 81. Law enforcement had wanted to meet with the Atlanta team primarily to get advice on how to handle a case with so many victims and such a huge influx of tips from the public. Members of the task force also visited with FBI profilers in Virginia. They discussed the murders in detail and tried to create a profile of the killer. They came up with the profile of a male perpetrator that was single, a civilian, a loner, and had a hard time holding a job. At the time, of course, profiling was very new, and so far they'd had an excellent success rate, including, of course, the profile of Wayne Williams. Because of this, law enforcement ended up relying far too heavily on the profile and using that primary source as the main focus of their investigation. The bodies that had been found were actually all within just a few miles of each other, so troopers decided to set up surveillance on the roads in that area to watch for either of the possible suspect vehicles. Law enforcement in the Atlanta child murders case had done something very similar by putting surveillance on possible body dump sites, which is how they eventually caught Wayne Williams. However, this tactic would prove to be not very helpful in this investigation. Frustrated, law enforcement decided to bring Jerry Sodeman in 
for yet another polygraph. This time there would be a different facilitator administering it than the previous two times. This facilitator was much more perceptive and he quickly figured out that Jerry actually had a heart murmur which could skew the results of the test. And Jerry would end up passing his third test. After the murder of Lori King, the killings had stopped. Detectives began to wonder if maybe they had been too short-sighted using just the profile. And they considered that possibly he was a military man that had been transferred out of state, which would really explain why the killings seemed to abruptly stop. Since their one suspect had now been ruled out, they decided to pursue the military lead. They collected vehicle records from both military bases and looked for vehicles that matched either of those that had been seen by witnesses, the blue car or the white truck. They ended up with a couple of hundred matches and at the time they had no way to narrow those names down. One tactic that had come from the Atlanta Child Murders Task Force that actually proved to be helpful was the use of a computer to streamline all of the tips that had come in from the public. There were thousands of tips that needed to be sorted through and not enough time or manpower to do it manually. So they learned how to add computers into the process. They would still be manually entering the tips, but it would end up being a little bit easier to cross-reference them. The computer they used was the size of a room, and several employees spent three months working around the clock just to get all of the tips input into the database. It was a revolutionary way of doing police work and had never been done before in Alaska. And of course, it would prove to be an invaluable tool. Because of the close proximity to two military bases, they received many tips about enlisted men at either of the bases. They mentioned men that were strange or inappropriate towards women, or men that just came across as generally creepy. One man's name had been submitted several different times. His name was Thomas Bunday. He was married with children and had been in the military for 15 years at that time. But many of the tips submitted about him said that he often said extremely inappropriate comments to female co-workers, and he made them all very uncomfortable. So along with a few other men that had been mentioned multiple times, Thomas Bunday went on the short list, but law enforcement kept digging. They just didn't think that a man could kidnap and brutalize women, then go home to his wife and kids as though nothing had happened. It was a long time ago. The task force had also gathered information on men that had been transferred away from either of those bases in the months after the discovery of Lori's body, or maybe even right after she had been kidnapped. Again, there were hundreds of results. 
they decided to send out a bulletin to as many military bases as they could throughout the United States. They described the details of the murders, and they requested that the base contact them if any similar crimes were to occur in that area. They were definitely thinking outside the box with this plan, but it turned out to be a great idea. They would have to wait a year and a half, but finally, in early 1983, they were contacted by law enforcement in Wichita Falls, Texas. Wichita Falls, which is located very closely to Shepard Air Force Base, had experienced an extremely similar murder to those that had occurred in Fairbanks. They quickly checked their list of men that had transferred out of Ileson Air Force Base to see if any had been transferred to Shepard Air Force Base in the months after Lori's murder. There was exactly one man that had transferred from Ileson to Shepard, Thomas Bunday. He had transferred to Shepard Air Force Base within mere days of Lori's body being found. They decided to research him a bit closer and saw that he indeed owned both a blue car and a white truck. But other than the statements from coworkers about him being inappropriate with women, others stated that he was just a kind of weird guy and kind of a loner. But the task force knew that they were on the right path. Members of the team decided to fly down to Texas and show up at his front door to question him in person. They didn't want to give him any heads up that he was on their radar. The one part of the FBI profile that they truly believed was that someone like the killer would be unable to stop himself from killing unless he was arrested or died. When they arrived in Texas and met with the Wichita Falls law enforcement, they learned that their main suspect in the murder had been a local meth dealer, and he had actually just died in a meth lab explosion, and they were declining to pursue the case any further. So the Alaskan team knew that it was on them. They found where Bunday lived, went to his house, and straight up asked him for a DNA sample, which he refused. Back in Alaska, the one decent witness, Thomas Oring, had quickly picked out Thomas Bunday from a photo lineup as the man he had seen talking to his younger sister a day before she disappeared. Law enforcement decided to do some psychological warfare against Bunday. They got a motel room and set it up to look like they'd been camped out there for weeks keeping an eye on him, presumably with red string connecting photos on a bulletin board. They invited him over for a chat and thus began a bizarre couple of days in which Bunday would show up to the motel room, meet with the officers, and proceed to make chit-chat with them for several hours. As one officer would later describe it, it was surreal. You wouldn't expect an innocent man to spend hours having mindless conversation with two officers without asking a single question about why they were there. It was almost as if he was just a lonely guy that needed someone to listen to him. 
Law enforcement was trying to sort of ingratiate themselves to him and slowly try to urge him into confessing. But he would neither admit to the crimes nor deny them. After being in Texas for a couple of days and having endless hours of conversation with Bunday, they secured a search warrant for his house. Inside, they found clippings about every single crime, as well as two different firearms which matched those they felt had been involved in the crimes, one of which was a shotgun and one of which was a 38 caliber handgun. Bunday was finally starting to get nervous, and the next day, he again showed up at the motel to talk to the officers, and finally, when they started talking about Doris and how her family was desperate to know where she was, he began to cry, and slowly, he admitted to the five murders and eventually drew them a map to indicate where they could find Doris's body. He also agreed to come back to Fairbanks to show them where she was buried, but he adamantly refused to confess to the murder that had happened in Texas, probably because he didn't want to end up on death row. I could not find this victim's name anywhere, but it appears that once the meth dealer had died, they presumed that he had been the killer and considered it closed. So the officers were extremely happy that they had finally found the man responsible for so much grief and heartache in Alaska, but they were in a strange place legally. They didn't actually have the legal right to arrest him in Texas, so they would have to just delicately try to urge him to come back to Alaska and hope that he wouldn't just bolt on them. The governor of Alaska actually ended up offering his private jet for them to take him back to Alaska and avoid changing his mind at a layover. So they arranged to have the jet show up in Texas the next morning and Bunday agreed that he would show up and meet them for the flight back to Alaska. But surprise, surprise, he did not show up. Law enforcement sat around waiting anxiously, wondering if he had skipped town. They had gotten so used to him just showing up on his own that they were actually surprised when he didn't. Later that afternoon, they finally received word that Bunday had died. He had headed out of town on his Yamaha motorcycle that day. About 60 miles out of town, he had cranked the speed way up, crossed the center line, and had a head-on collision with a dump truck. He had taken the coward's way out at age 35. In the aftermath, Alaska law enforcement ended up with a lot more information about him from family members. His brother said that they'd had an abusive childhood with a father who was physically violent. Thomas had married his high school sweetheart, then joined the Air Force right out of high school. While overseas in the military, he'd had affairs, and when he told his wife, she had an affair that led to a child. One of his two kids that he'd actually been raising was not his biological child. 
Law enforcement wondered if that was the straw that broke the camel's back and made him either start hating women or at least start acting on his hatred towards women. They managed to track down a high school friend of Bundy's who said that he had always been slightly off. He was the kind of guy that would play practical jokes that would often end up just being horribly humiliating for the recipient or actually painful. So maybe only funny to Bundy. Interestingly enough, he had actually been to a psychologist about his marital problems, and that psychologist was later convicted of attempted murder when he tried to hire a hitman to kill his wife. So probably not the best marriage counselor. Months after his death, forensics from the crime scenes and his vehicle would make it conclusive that he had been the killer for all of the victims that had been found. Six years after Doris disappeared, her remains were finally found on Isleson Air Force Base, very close to where Bundy had worked. Finally, her family was able to lay her to rest. And on a side note, at the same time that Bundy was at Isleson Air Force Base, there was a man that was also in the Air Force as a sergeant, and after leaving the Air Force, he ended up becoming a painter. And many of his paintings would be greatly inspired by his surroundings in North Pole and Fairbanks. That man's name was Bob Ross. I'm very curious to know if their paths ever crossed or if they ever worked directly with one another, but since they are both long from this earth, that will likely have to remain a mystery. Thanks for joining me for this episode and thank you so much for all the positive feedback I've received. Y'all are so motivational. Thanks again. Happy holidays, and I'll see you before the new year.